Good morning and welcome. It's good to be here this morning. It's been a little while since I have been here in this place. Um, it's mostly new faces, but there's a few that have been around here for a little while that it's good to see. Last number of times I've been here, we've been down on first floor, so it's good to be in this spot again to worship with you all today. Greetings from Oswego, Kansas, as Leonard said. Um, we're not that far away, but it does seem like, for some reason, three hours still makes it hard to get here. Recently at home, I've been preaching through First Peter, and... As I've been doing so, I've been impressed with the context in which 1 Peter is written. And I think it adds to the punch that Peter um, gives to know some of that context. And yes, this morning you're getting what could be called a microwave sermon. It's rewarmed, but I hope it can be a blessing. So I'd like to look just a little bit at what this context is for 1 Peter. Um, the very first verse of 1 Peter, we notice that it is written to strangers, it says, who are scattered throughout what we know today as Turkey. They are strangers. They are people who are not at home. They are people who have differences with those around them. They are scattered. They are not all clumped together. This was written to a group of churches. And it is also possible it was referring to scattering that happened because of persecution. During the time this was written, the people that Peter wrote to were experiencing a fairly high level of persecution at that time. These people were being abused. They were being killed. They were being tortured because they claimed the name of Christ. Persecution then, unsurprisingly, comes up repeatedly in 1 Peter. It is a repeated theme. It is something that he addresses in a number of different angles. Peter here addresses, among other things, how the people in these churches, these persecuted people, should respond both in attitude and actions, to this persecution that was happening. So that's some of the context. This, the churches that were being written to were a diverse group of people. Um, some of these were likely Jews who had um, scattered from Israel and had started their own synagogues. Um, often when the apostles had gone out, they preached to the Jews and then... From there, they preached to the other people around. So likely these churches had quite a number of Jews. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament. They would have been familiar with, with um, the teachings of God, with the scriptures. But then there are also quite a few who would have had pagan backgrounds. So these were people who would not have known the scriptures. They were not used to um, thinking of Jehovah God. Some of these people would have been quite wealthy, likely, or had been. Some of these people would have been likely in extreme poverty. Some of them would have been very influential. Others 
may have been bottom-run slaves. So that's a bit of the context. Jumping a little further into 1 Peter, there's some literary context for what I'd like to look at today. Um, 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 13 through about 3, 7, is a pretty lengthy section in which Peter discusses the idea of submission. He teaches this idea from a few different angles or for with a few different areas. Um, the first one he talks about is submission to government. And I think it's especially poignant when we remember that he's teaching about submission to government, to a government that is persecuting these people. Secondly, he teaches about submission in society, or we could maybe say the workplace, specifically the interaction between slaves and those who own them, slaves and masters. How does that look? And then lastly, he talks about submission in the home. And again, you know, many of these would have been Christians that likely came to Christ married, with family, and who may have been alone in their decision. I expect there were a fair number of these people who were Christians whose spouses were not. What does submission look like? In that context. This then brings us to our topic today that we find in verses 8 and 9 in chapter 3. Verses eight, verse 8 especially ties two sections kind of together. Um, it, it ties that of submission and that of returning good for evil. Or we could possibly think about this as submission, a further instruction of submission, and maybe particularly within the church. My title today is The Mind of Christ, and my goal is to encourage us to continue to grow and to build the church here or wherever you may be. The Bride and Body of Christ. I'd like to just read 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12 to begin with here. 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrariwise blessing knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let them eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Peter here addresses a number of things in verse 8 that are important to living well in relationship. And I think this is true of any relationship, but I think it's also very practical in the church relationship. I'd like to spend a little bit of time with each one of these and then make some comments after that. 
Peter begins by saying, finally, be ye all of one mind. I think he's talking about, among other things, unity. Unity. I'm interested, David Gusick makes this comment. Most of us are willing to have one mind as long as that one mind is my mind. But the one mind is to be the mind of Christ. Our common mind is to be Jesus' mind. There's a couple things in that statement I'd like to just tease out here. First of all, is that one mind is more than just unity. This one mind is not just an agreement with like-minded individuals. It is a submission of my mind to another. And this is not just any other mind. This is the mind of Christ. Secondly, this mind is not primarily my mind that I am submitting. It is our mind. It is not individual, but it is corporate. It is not to be just Christ and I, but it is Christ and the brotherhood and I. I must submit my personal mind to that of the brotherhood and to Christ if I wish to gain the mind of Christ. So how do we know what the mind of Christ is? How do we become unified in the mind of Christ? I think the mind of Christ is made known to us in a number of different ways. There's a number of different things that we, that we do that helps with that. But there are four in particular that I'd like to point out this morning. The first is the Bible. The Bible. We must know it well. I think it's good to memorize it. It's necessary to learn the cadence, the way it interacts with itself, the way it brings out themes, the message within the entire Bible, the ways of thinking within the Bible. I think these are important things to look at, to learn, to know. I think it's also important that we don't come to the Bible with our own agenda. We must come with a desire to know what God would teach us today and with an attitude of humility regarding our interpretation. And finally, we of course must respond well. Unless Scripture changes who we are, then what good is Scripture to us? Without a response, really nothing has been gained. How do we know the mind of Christ? One is to know his word, the Bible. The second is the Holy Spirit and its work in our lives. John 14, 26 says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit is within each one of us as Christians when we have committed our lives to him. He is teaching us. He is reminding us. He is guiding us. And it says, in all things. 
But I think there is one thing that can stop that. We must be listening. If we're not listening, we will not hear him. We need to cultivate a listening ear, an ear that is not only willing to hear, but an ear that is tuned to hear. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He does not force us to listen to him. We must learn to pay attention. Thirdly, I think God speaks to us. God, we learn to know God through the people around us. Interesting, if we think about it, the Bible itself was written by humans under the inspiration of God, true. But God works through people. These might be individuals around us. It might be our local brotherhood. Or it might be things that people have written in the past. It's not uncommon for God to speak to individuals through people around them. After all, is that not the role of prophets, teachers, and preachers, to name a few? I think this often comes in the form of advice or concerns that people share with us. It can also come in the form of group decisions that are made. But I think it's probably a little rare for it to come as a God told me to tell you. We must listen to people around us. The fourth thing I have is history. I think it is often helpful for us to look at history, to understand how God has worked in the past, to understand how Christians have understood things in the past. And how did it work out for them? Now, this history thing could be our personal history. How has God worked for us? How have we seen God work in our lives? It might be our grandparents. It might be a little further back. It might be Reformation. It might be early Christians. It could possibly even be Old Testament prophets and teachers. History. Now, this is obviously not an exhaustive list, but I think it's helpful to get us started thinking. How is it that I can learn the mind of Christ? And I'd like to point out again that this one mind is a communal mind, and it is the mind of Christ. Christ's followers are expected to live and operate within the context of community. God did create us as relational beings. He created us as two. We live together. We interact together. And there is clear teaching in the New Testament that talks about living together as a body, as the body of Christ. And I'm also interested that God gives us different giftings within the church, different strengths, different things that we're good at, that we're interested in, that we can offer the church. Ephesians 4 talks about a few of these gifts, but notice what it says they're for. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
We could also go to 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 and we would see much the same thing. There is diversity within the body of Christ. And this diversity is for a purpose. It's not happenstance. It is intentional. Diversity can be a strength, but it is only a strength when it is submitted to each other in unity. There's an old story about a father who was trying to get a point across to his son, his sons, plural. And he bundled together a, a bundle of sticks, a whole group of sticks, and he gave that to them and challenged them to break it. And they worked at it quite a while. They tried quite a number of different ways to break this bundle of sticks. And in the end, they were unsuccessful. And they brought it back to their father and were kind of, you know, what's, what's going on? And his father says, well, you can't break this bundle. It's real easy. And he took the bundle apart and he broke each one of the sticks individually. The church, when it is bound together in unity, is unstoppable by Satan and his kingdom. But if he can take us apart, he can very easily break each of us individually. I think there's many a local church that has been destroyed through a lack of unity. I suggest that each one of us individually is responsible to maintain our connection to our church, to our local church, to the church, the body of Christ. When we feel ourselves being driven away, I think we do well to do what it takes to bind ourselves more closely to the body of Christ. But I also believe it is a corporate responsibility when we see individuals being wedged away from us, we should reach out and invite them closer to us. Unity. This one mind. It is an act of submission. I think it's a, both an active act of submission and a passive. We must both offer what we have and defer to those around us. It is an act of submission by many people to each other and to Christ. The second word here in verse 8 is compassion. It says, have compassion, having compassion one of another. The Greek word here indicates to have a fellow feeling. Compassion is a great word. Sympathy could be another we might think of it as trying to place myself in another's shoes, in another's circumstances, in another's experiences to identify with. So there is that part, but there is also the part that is to be one with, to be a part of something, to be together. Compassion is defined by Merriam-Webster's dictionary as a sympathetic consciousness of another's distress together with a desire to alleviate it. So this is two parts. 
First of all, it's, it's, a, it's a compassion. It's, it's a, um, to be compassionate, you must be aware. Now, it's pretty easy to go through life and just kind of doodle through it and not pay attention to what's going on around and just to be unaware. There's times when it's maybe a little easier to be intentionally unaware. We are being called to be aware of the distress of those around us. And then there's the second part, a desire to alleviate that distress, a desire to do something for them, a desire to be with them. And this really does take the wisdom of God to do well. Much harm has been done through inappropriate and inappropriate desire to alleviate someone's distress. And much harm has been done by sitting back and doing nothing. We must be mindful of the leading of God, the leading of our Lord. I'd like to suggest that often this alleviating others' distress is not causing the problem to go away necessarily, although it can be that, but rather to listen, to sympathize, and to join others in their walk. If we go back to our illustration of a bundle of sticks, the bundle is not stronger because it somehow stops the pressure, but because it works together, because individually they offer their strength to the group and supports each other. The same is true of us believers. We are stronger not because the pressure stops, but because we walk together within that pressure. Let's seek to have compassion, to help and support each other, rather than alienation and driving each other away. The third one here is to love as brethren. We've already heard some of that. Thank you for the songs. That was, they fit very well. Love is an extremely important part of brotherhood. It is essential to submission. Without love, a lot of things fall apart. Love is often commanded in the New Testament. Two examples are Romans 12.10 where it says, Be kindly affectionate one to another with brotherly love in honor preferring one another. Hebrews 13.1 says, Let brotherly love continue. There's another teaching that I think is worth noting. In John 13, verse 35, Jesus says, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I think we often think of that as when we love each other, people can tell we are with Jesus. Jesus is within us. But I wonder, what does that mean when love is not present? 1 John 4, verse 20 says, If a man say, I love God and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Love is both an attitude and an action. If we don't choose to have an attitude of love, if we don't choose to act loving, then I'd like to suggest that we are probably not loving. 
Love is a choice, and yet it is also more than a choice. It is a choice, it is also an attitude, and as such, it can take some time to build. It takes time to truly learn to love, to truly gain that love of our brethren. I think it is important that we choose to love and work towards loving the body of Christ and those within it. Another piece of love, we often hear love and truth pitted against each other. That's an extremely unfortunate twisting of both. There is no reason that love cannot be expressed in truth and that truth cannot be expressed in love. It's not loving to hide or ignore truth, nor is it truthful to express God's mind without love. God is truth and God is love. They must go together. Love as brethren. The last word here is be pitiful. Be pitiful. So this injunction is not a command to somehow be contemptible or deplorable. Sometimes we talk about that pitiful thing. Um, That's not the way this is being used here. This word is very similar to the compassion. It is a command to have sympathy or, or pity towards each other. The word that is translated compassion and the word that's translated pitiful here are two very different words in the Greek that have a very similar idea. There's another place where this word translated pitiful here is used in the New Testament, and it's in Ephesians 4, verse 32. You might be familiar with this verse. And be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted is our word. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Much like compassion, this word is to be easily moved for another's plight, to quickly sense another's distress. So what's the difference? Why name this idea twice? I think that the main difference here is that pitiful is in relation to how I have affected another's plight. How quickly do I recognize that I have hurt someone else? How quick am I to go back to that person and make it right? Matthew 5, verses 23 through 25 say this, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Then he continues here, Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. This section speaks to God's interest in how we interact with other people. Here, Jesus says it's more important to make yourself right 
with those around you than it is to sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice. I think it's pretty important that we make ourselves right with other people. Secondly, this speaks to not letting things sit and fester. We don't want to stay in this state of separation with God. We must not stay in that state of separation with our brother either. We want to make things right quickly so that we again can be right with God. Verse 25 says, agree with thine adversary quickly. Don't mess around. I suspect that the last verse here has as much connotation to the spiritual as to the physical. Speaking of God and bondage to sin, not just the earthly judge and prison. We as Christians should seek to repair relationships quickly when we have wronged others. But I think it goes beyond that. It might even be to come to them when they feel wronged by us, whether we feel we wronged them or not. I think this give and take is important to any relationship. And I suggest that it's maybe especially important within the brotherhood. I think I said the pitiful was the last one. I was wrong. (laughs) There's one more. Be courteous. Here the idea is to be friendly of mind, to be kind. That doesn't match up exactly with the King James Version, courteous. The Greek doesn't match up exactly with this translation, but I still like it. I think the Greek talks about the attitude or the frame of mind and insinuates the action. Here the English talks about the action and insinuates the attitude. To be courteous, according to Merriam-Webster's again, is to be marked by respect for and consideration of others. And if you look throughout the scope of the translations, it is most often actually translated using the idea of humility or without pride. And that's a little different take. But the proud mind is definitely not a friendly mind. And a humble mind leads itself to kindness, to consideration of others and their needs. Courtesy, humility. They are essential to quality relationships. They help remove the heat that happens in the friction of misunderstandings, of differences, of failures. As a bit of a side, I hear people talk about the benefits of being blunt and saying things the way they are. And I agree, especially if we're talking about hiding things or a failure to address things that need to be addressed. But I'd like to draw us back a bit from just saying the things that need to be said in the way that we feel like saying them. I think it's worth the effort to say things in a way that enables people to more easily hear and respond well to what we are saying. 
it really does nobody good for things to be said in a way that unnecessarily breaks down relationship. It's also true that when we, are, when we have courtesy with each other, we're less likely to paint ourselves into a corner of our own making. And if I, exchange, if I extend courtesy to those around me, they are more likely to extend the courtesy to me when I need it. To be friendly of mind, to be kind, I trust that's the way we wish to live. I suggest that when we live and operate in these ways, then we are living and operating in the mind of Christ or with the mind of Christ. And when we operate with the mind of Christ, then living life together is a joy. It's an encouragement. It is building to the body of Christ. If everybody would follow verse 8, if I would always follow verse 8, then there would be no need of verse 9. But that's not the world we live in. So what do we do when others don't live in these ways? How do we respond? What is our responsibility? Verse 9 says that we should give back blessing. Or we could say return blessing for the evil that was given us. Yes, I think we're all aware that this is mercy and grace, not justice. But let's also be reminded that that is what we have received from God. Grace and mercy. And so it's only natural that we should offer it to those around us. Romans 12, as I mentioned earlier, talks about many of the same things as Peter does here. And verses 19 and 20 of Romans 12 say this, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap whole coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. If I understand this correctly, we are essentially to continue relating with others in the ways of verse 8, even when they respond in ways that are not those ways, even when they are terrible to us. Remember, these are written in the context of persecution. These things are written to people who were experiencing the death of loved ones, their own torture, and their own deaths. We are to show people that give us evil Christ's love, Christ's mercy, even when they're not responding in those ways regardless of how they respond. I think part of what God is asking us to do is to show them God, who, 
loves us, works with us, forgives us, and has mercy on us even when we don't deserve it, and even when we have been antagonistic towards him. Verse 21 reminds us that when we return evil, we have been overcome of evil. But when we return good, then we have overcome evil. And also, I notice that justice does not go away, but rather, it is left to God. Coming back to 1 Peter, verse 9 says that we should return blessing. Do you notice the tail end of that verse? Where it says, so that we will inherit a blessing. The blessing that we are to give is a pretty open-ended word. It's pretty... It's not very distilled. It is a a term that basically means the opposite of evil and railing. There's plenty of room for creativity, but it is to be the benefit of the other person. We should be desiring good things for all people. And the promise is that we will receive a blessing as well. In conclusion here, in 1 Peter, we are told to live in the same mind, the mind of Christ. We are called to live in compassion, to be aware of and participate in others' distresses, others' joys, others' burdens. We are called to live in love, that strongest of all binding agents. We are to live in pity, quickly making right where we have sinned against others. We are to live in courtesy, a kindly attitude that helps relationships grow and flourish. And finally, we are to live in these ways regardless of how others are living. Are these things a part of the mind of Christ? I believe they are. And they are definitely the way Christ has acted towards us. I was reminded recently of the terminology of the body of Christ and how that is a really big deal. We, together, here today, are a part of the body of Christ. Our actions and our attitudes towards each other are attitudes and actions towards the body of Christ towards Christ. It is his body. Matthew 25, in verses 40 and 45, it says a very similar thing, that inasmuch, Jesus speaking, inasmuch as ye have done it or not done it, unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it or not done it unto me. That's combining the two verses there. The ways we operate, the ways we act towards each other, our ways we act towards Christ. We definitely want to live in these ways towards Christ. How well are we doing towards our brother, towards his body? Let's bow our heads in prayer.